Welcome to episode 432 with my guest, El Huerta. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. I am a former TV host and stand-up jackass. So, you've been warned. You've been warned. But... I have been in therapy and support groups for 15 plus years, and uh, and I'm nuts. So I bring a little of that expertise to it, but um, this is not meant to be a substitute for uh, for professional mental counseling, as I said. And that's not a doctor's office. So don't uh, be looking for Highlights Magazine. You're not going to find it here. Is there any place that has a worse selection of magazines than a doctor's office. Yes, I have an hour to wait. I would love to read Pottery Weekly. <laughs> Gracie is doing well, for those of you that don't know. I finally adopted a dog. I wasn't sure. We re- I recorded this episode with Elle uh, the week that I was kind of deciding whether or not to adopt Gracie. And um, obviously I made that decision and I've never been happier making a, making a decision uh, about a dog. And she's just the fucking best. She is the best. This is a happy moment shared by I'm not sure what this even means. A woman who calls herself bed number to bib number. Um, But I like it. I'm on board. She writes, I'm just a few days away from the second anniversary of my hospitalization for a mental breakdown with PTSD, psychosis, depression, and panic attacks. It's been two years of medication changes, appointments with my psychiatrist, weekly visits to my therapist, yoga, meditation, CBT, DBT, exposure therapy, EMDR, tears, and listening to this podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's also been two years of running, literally, and I now find myself laid up on my couch for a few days again, but this time it's not because I'm too depressed to move, too anxious to go to work because of psychosis and auditory hallucinations from my abusive past. I'm planted here right now because I'm so sore from running my first marathon. I'm limping around my apartment in pain with a shit-eating grin and tears of joy in my eyes. To those who are struggling, you can get better. Keep trying. Be accountable. Ask for help. And most of all, get out and move. Thank you for sharing that. And to that, I would add, um, be, be reasonable in the expectations you set for yourself. If you are finding it difficult to leave the house, Set a goal of of just, uh, you know, I'm just going to walk to the front porch and back. Or, you know, I'm going to walk to the end of the driveway. If you're Southern Belle, you don't have to walk to the end of the driveway because that, that just walk out. Like, you don't have to go all the way to where you keep the paddle boat. That's almost a mile. Walk a half mile just to where the the help is tending to the mossy trees. Maybe you don't even have the energy for that. Maybe you you had a, uh, your debutante ball last night and you're just exhausted by all the Southern gentlemen and their 
traditional uh, artifice. I don't even know what the words are. So what I'm saying, Southern Bells, is you also, you're not an exception to this. You're an exception in every other aspect of life. But for this, set a small goal. Just walk down the spiral staircase a couple of times. You know, you don't have to get big. You don't have to get crazy. Put on a hoop skirt on a windy day. Just fight the wind. Sit up in bed. Just fan yourself. You don't have to have the vapors. Am I at the end of this bit? I think I've, I think I might have milked that for for all it was worth. Thank you for uh, for sharing that. This is an email that I got from uh, a woman who wants to be referred to as an asexual female in her 30s. And she writes, I was just listening to the episode titled Trading Sex for Love and want to say it was very well done and the guest story was very powerful and valuable. I wanted to reach out about some comments you had regarding a listener survey where the writer describes feeling icky when being touched or intimate and how it could be related back to being inappropriately sexualized as a child. You mentioned the person could heal and become sexual again. That is entirely possible, but I wanted to offer an alternative thought. Maybe they are asexual, and that is something they don't yet understand about themselves. I think your insight was great and well-meaning, but as a person who also doesn't enjoy the act of sex and has not experienced sexual trauma beyond the typical doing it, because I felt like I was supposed to not because I actually enjoyed it. Wait, let me read that again. I think your insight was great and well-meaning, but as a person who also doesn't enjoy the act of sex and has not experienced sexual trauma beyond the typical doing it because I felt like I was supposed to not because I actually enjoyed it. I just sometimes wish more space was made for folks to feel okay expressing that they just don't like sex. And that's not something that requires healing or fixing. I'd love to listen to an episode with a guest that is asexual, that could describe their experiences living in a world where folks who don't want to have sex are are treated as broken and fixable and how that affects a person's psyche. I think there are a lot of us out there who relate. Thanks for all you do. And thank you for sharing that. And I love when you guys send me emails that uh, expand my understanding of the breadth of people's experience. And um, it, it helps me, I think, be a better, a better host and uh, a better citizen. That, was, that, that, that sounded a little uh, Frank Capra. <laughs> that was like uh, the end of a speech in a courtroom. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself insert clever pseudonym here and describing her depression. She writes, high functioning depression. I look fine on the outside, but inside my sock is slipping down into my shoe. That is awesome. Such a great description. Thank you. I want to remind you guys, uh, one of our sponsors is BetterHelp.com. I'm a big fan of uh, their online therapy. I do it every week, and every week it it helps me, and I continue to grow with the the guidance from my counselor, Donna. She's awesome. And uh, if you want to try it, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. 
make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from this podcast and just fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you with a betterhelp.com counselor if they have one that they think uh, can service your needs. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And you don't have to do video. You could do text or live chat or phone, even email. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Rich, and he deals with depression, anxiety, and love addiction. And about his anxiety, he writes, it feels like I'm always in trouble with someone. Oh my God, that is such a great description. It's like you're in trouble with someone, but you don't know who, or you forgot their name, or you forgot why they're mad at you. Oh. Snapshot from his life. I remember a year almost had went by after my separation with my wife as I finally, better late than never, started to clean out things that were still in the house that were hers. I broke down noticing she left behind family photos but took our old sex toys. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared, scared. And, and we're just, just all in this together. <laughs> there was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks are so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I went out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna help you one day. People are gonna love you for that. It takes a lot of work to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with El Huerta, uh, who created an app uh, it's called Mend, is Mend. that right? Yeah. And it was named like one of the best of the year by Apple. Yeah, best of 2018 in the App Store. That's pretty was, amazing. Yeah. Considering, and it's for heartbreak. It is, yeah. For anyone who's going through a breakup and feels like they need some more support. I say, you know, just shun people that uh, <laughs> that are going through heartbreak ship them to a desert island and then when they're ready to come back uh maybe that's a little harsh <laughs> yeah heartbreak is a motherfucker it really it's, is it talk talk about what led you in your life to want to create this i'm taking a wild guess you had some heartbreak and it was yeah it was my own breakup i mean i really created what I wanted to exist that didn't exist. And I was going through a romantic breakup at the time, but um, I was also still dealing with the, the heartbreak of my parents' divorce. So this was like kind of a double whammy of going through my own breakup and then um, a breakup of my family. And I remember being up really late at night, like 2 a.m., searching for breakup advice on my phone and just everything that came back was really terrible just like awful advice like, like some examples oh just you do know, whatever it, it takes to get him back yeah like some of it was really predatory like that you know programs that would guarantee you would get your ex back um and then some of it was just more dismissive like 
you know, it's just a relationship, move on. It's, you know, a breakup isn't that big of a deal. Um, and then I think the sort of age old advice that I found most frustrating, um, was it just takes time. And, you know, I think that there is some truth to that, of course, Mm -hmm. but there's also a lot you can do proactively to help yourself feel better and also process it in a more healthy way. Um, and that's really what I was interested in finding and nothing that I found online really resonated with that message. So, so what were some of the thoughts and feelings you were dealing with after the breakup and how were they affecting your life? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big ones, which was big for me, and I think also it's, it's one of the more common feelings that you deal with when you're going through a breakup, but it's this very primal feeling of being rejected or being, you know, not good enough, feeling like you're not good enough just because this one person has Mm -hmm. decided that they don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. Who might even be emotionally unavailable. Right. Yeah. It could have nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. But it feels so personal. And I remember, um, you know, I remember getting the advice that, um, you know, that I didn't need to take it so personally that um, it could have nothing to do with me. And, and there is some truth to that, but in the moment it really feels like, Rejection, And they've done research now that shows that social rejection like that, whether it's being rejected in a social situation or being rejected in, you know, a relationship situation like a breakup um, really causes you physical pain. Like it lights up the same pain center in your brain that lights up when you break a bone. Um, And I thought that was really fascinating. So um, what were some of the feelings that you were feeling both physical and emotional, Uh, like shame or? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of shame. Like I remember feeling ashamed that a relationship had failed that I had invested so much in. And, you know, I told so many friends about this relationship and, you know, you you really project into the future and you start to build this life with someone um, that, you know, doesn't exist yet. And then when that doesn't come true, there's some shame in admitting like, feel foolish. Yeah. Like, you know, that's not going to happen now. And, um, and it's maybe it will happen, but not with that person, not in the exact same way I planned. So shame was, was definitely one. And then I think the other feeling that came out a lot during that time was just feeling, um, feeling isolated. And so even though I was surrounded by my coworkers and I had friends and I had, some family members around that I could, um, you know, get support from, I still felt very isolated in the experience of being heartbroken. Um, because I didn't have friends who were necessarily going through a breakup at the same time as me. And I think that's a very common experience. You know, even though breakups are so common and universal, it's unlikely that, you know, a lot of people in your immediate circle will be going through the same exact experience. So you do feel lonely and your friends are there for you, but there comes a point when, I I think that you do start to feel like a burden when you're kind of rehashing the same story over again. And, um, you know, you start to feel like um, you have kind of worn out your welcome. (laughs) And I I think there's a feeling, too, that like you're talking to somebody and you're in the trench and they're standing outside the trench kind of looking down at you. Yeah. And they spend, you know, an evening with you and you're watching Netflix and you feel a little bit better and then they go home and their life continues on. And I remember having that feeling 
Um, it happened like with my parents' divorce and then it also happened when I went through the breakup that inspired men. But I remember that feeling of just, I felt like an alien, like everybody, like everything was just continuing on as normal. And yet my life had been flipped upside down. Mm-hmm. And so that's definitely like you, you start to feel isolated. And, and were you living with this person that you broke up with? No, we weren't living together. Um, and that adds a whole other layer of, and I've been through breakups since where we were living together. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily I didn't have to deal with the, uh, kind of the logistics of that, which I think are so hard because you're really not, um, you're really not in like a healthy frame of mind to be making so many decisions like that. Like, where am I going to live? And you know, mm-hmm. how am I going to move and how do I pack up all my stuff? But a lot of people are forced to. Because you have you have to do those things after a breakup if you're moving out. Um, no, I was actually living with a roommate at the time, which I found difficult in a different way because I felt like uh, I didn't have complete privacy to really like grieve and mourn maybe the way that I would have if I had been living alone. You couldn't go fetal position in the middle yeah. of the well, living no, room. Well, no, I did that, but, yeah? but not in the middle of the living room. No. Yeah. But yeah, in the yes. in the privacy of my bedroom, yeah. I'm for sorry, sure. If you could just wriggle a little lower, you're right in front of the TV and you're blocking my view. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I know. Yeah. And it was, you know, sometimes it was really nice to have someone around and then sometimes it was really difficult. Um, but yeah, the main emotions I remember feeling were... Um, were yeah isolation and a little bit of shame and then i think um anger you know not even anger necessarily directed at the person but just angry that it didn't work out you know Mm -hmm. that i couldn't make it work couldn't fix it i'm very much and i think a lot of people are like this but i'm a problem solver and i'm very persistent almost to like a fault sometimes and so i think for me it was like this was a failure because i couldn't figure it out. I couldn't make it work. Do you have uh, difficulty surrendering in other areas of your life to to what is and mm. sometimes through sheer force of will yeah. try to? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think that um, I it, what has helped me through that and I feel um, like I don't struggle with that as much as I used to, but um, meditating regularly, mm-hmm. which I've now been doing for 10 years. And, um, I found meditation kind of during that period when my parents were getting divorced. And, uh, I think that's been the single biggest tool that's helped me with, you know, really making peace with how something is mm-hmm. and not wanting to change it not trying to change it. Uh, in that it helps your mind wind down and gives you some distance from the way your mind is is acting so you can kind of observe your emotions rather than be your emotions yeah um you know like getting me out of that sort of like monkey mind like helping me take a step back and really evaluate instead of just reacting and um you know as soon as something happens just reacting with emotions really being able to be thoughtful about it and um and just from like a you know like a physiological perspective um when you go through a a really stressful situation like that like your physiology really changes like if you go through a breakup or a divorce it changes your brain it changes your body and um and i found meditation to be a really effective tool to help 
calm my physiology and mm-hmm. actually like activate the um, you know, the part of my nervous system that was would calm me down. Mm-hmm. So really like at a very basic level, um, I found that it was effective for that. And a lot of that had to do with just the breath work that accompanied meditation. How old were you when your parents divorced? I was, well, when they really got divorced, like the divorce was finalized, I was probably 22, but they had been separated um, and like going through the process of a divorce for several years before that. So that happened my senior year or no, sorry, my junior year of college. Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of the ways that the monkey mind yeah. pre meditation. Give us yeah. some some snapshots of, of the, un- like. the unmanageability, <laughs> yeah. both internally and externally. Yeah, I mean, I truly think that when you go through a breakup or a heartbreak, <clears throat> it really does feel like you're trying, you're going through withdrawal, and um, and research really supports that that you, you know, you're sort of addicted to the hormonal feedback and the chemical feedback that you get from being around someone being in a relationship. And I definitely felt that when the relationship ended, um, you know, I was just like desperate to reunite with that person. And part of that is really rooted in, in evolution. Like we were, we evolved with that system so that if we ever got, you know, isolated or broken up with someone that we would do everything we could to reunite with them. Cause it was really important obviously to like find that person and mate and procreate. Right. It's like, and that was great back then, but now it's like, you know, there are, there are reasons why you no longer want to be with someone, but the, the body is still set up the same way and the brain is still set up the same way. And I just remember feeling like I was trapped. Like I was sort of a prisoner of that, just like of your desperately, emotions. Yeah. Just like desperately wanting to see them again and like, you know, trying to bump into them and coming up with excuses to run into them and, um, social you know, media texting stalking. Them. yeah, social media stalking. Like, thank God social media wasn't as, advanced as it is now but um like i feel so terrible for people who are going through their first breakup like in high school and they've spent their whole lives on instagram and everything is so intertwined but but yeah i remember like social media stalking at the time it was like mostly facebook so checking uh, your status texting. every every yeah. hour waiting for it I to mean, say you know in a relationship yeah like yeah, back then, like relationship status was really a big thing. So I remember it was devastating when we were no longer connected on. What would it feel like? That. What would it feel like if you went on Facebook and you saw a picture of him just with a, a female in the yeah. picture, but you didn't know what their relationship yeah. would you just feel it in oh, your yeah, stomach I mean, or it what? It feels like you're, I mean, it feels like you're dying. Like you go into fight or flight mode for yeah. sure. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important if you're going through that experience to take a step back from social media um, because it truly is it's like bumping into them like yes it's digital and they're not Mm -hmm. there in front of you but like your brain can't tell the difference and it takes you right back there and it's just like any addiction like it takes you right back to um, just wanting them wanting more of them and Mm -hmm. but it feels like a heart attack like when you first stumble upon upon that and um and and the the empty feeling in the chest is the that to me is the the part that's just so 
it's so hard. Yeah. And I mean, it affects your appetite. Like I remember, um, I mean, I've been through a lot of breakups now and they each have affected me differently, but I remember the first really major breakup that I went through just, um, just not being hungry at all. Mm. And it just like, my appetite was gone. And then there've been other breakups where it's the opposite. Like I just can't stop eating. So it just, you know, it really affects you on a very, very basic level. And that was what I felt like people didn't address. Like people were very dismissive about breakups. Like, Oh, well you weren't even married. So it's not even that big of a deal. But I felt like that really missed the point. Like this was such a basic like human experience you know there there's a a friend of the show he's been a guest a couple of times uh named dr guy winch and he oh yeah oh you know him yeah okay the book he wrote about the small heartbreaks is hugely important the loss of a pet or the loss of somebody that you're not married to that people don't don't yeah they don't understand yeah and it's you know you're your brain and body see it as the same. You know, yeah. it's not like it's not like it differentiates between whether it was your dog or, you know, mm-hmm. whether you were married or not. And I mean, that's one reason why we actually have a lot of people who are using men for reasons that the app wasn't originally designed for. Um, like we do have people who are using it because they've lost a pet. That's a big, a major loss. And now I'm a dog owner now of like two years. And I really understand that. Um, and now you're a new dog owner too. I think so. (laughs) I think so. She, she, uh, yeah, I'm 99% sure that I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to adopt her. I just, um, yeah. And I'm, and I haven't decided on a name, but here's the, I bought a shitload of treats at the grocery store. So So I think that's, yeah, the deal is sealed. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) And I'm actually petting her under the table right now as we, (laughs) she's so cute. I can just see her tail. Yeah. She's, Um, she's a little ball of love. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many different kinds of, of heartbreak that we see and it's, you know, veterans who've left the military, um, people who've lost a loved one and are grieving and, um, you know, there are a million ways that you can have your heart broken and it's such a, such a normal, natural part of life. And yet I felt like it was really treated with stigma. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I've been working on mend yeah. for the past few years. Hold that thought for one second. Kat, would yeah. you just slide the door open? I think the, the wind is making it, uh, knock, knock a little bit. You can, op- you can open it wide open. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, have have you always had a, a bit of an addictive personality? Was there? Mm. Um, uh, and uh, I apologize if I'm sounding, you know, like Mr. CSI trying to. No, it's an interesting um, question. I'm just fascinated yeah. by the relationship between our past and our and our present yeah. behavior or yeah. feelings, just our yeah. feelings. Um, any he, any. Yeah. Big events in your life that. I think that it is, it's a trait that I've had my whole life. And I think there's like a a bright side to it, which is that like when I want something or when I'm trying to do something, I'm so focused on it. And Mm -hmm. that's panned out in really positive ways in my life. And then the dark side of it is that I can be obsessive, you know, and I can get kind of into obsessive thinking. And it's one of the reasons why, um, why it was so valuable to me when I found meditation and, um, and that's one thing that I know about myself, but, um, but definitely I think it's like, 
it's this idea, sort of what I mentioned about just being really persistent about something. I've been that way like my whole life, like since I was little. Mm -hmm. Um, And even the way that I was born, like I, it was a really difficult labor and, um, and I almost died and I was just very, very persistent in living. And it was sort of against all odds. And even after I was born, they weren't sure if there was going to be damage because it had been such a difficult, um, delivery. And, um, and my mom always tells that story because that's like, that was the positive side of that trait. And then there are, um, you know, there are sort of negative aspects of it too, where you, you can feel trapped by it. Can you give some concrete examples? I mean, a lot of them are, are smaller ones. I think it's just like, sometimes it's really hard to let go of things. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think it was a bigger, um, that was sort of a bigger issue that I faced maybe when I was younger, um, could be like, letting go of something that I really wanted that I didn't get letting go of like the way that I thought something should be. Mm-hmm. Um, For, so or, future, future tripping is a big source of, yeah. Or it could just be like letting go of like a phase of my life or letting go of a person. Like I think, um, you know, it, like it was a lot of different things kind of growing up. And then I think that trait of being like really persistent or like more obsessive, came out when, um, yeah, like when I was in school, I mean, I was just like so focused and so obsessed, like almost to a point where I like made myself sick because I was just like Mm -hmm. working so hard, um, in high school. And actually like my senior year worked myself into such a like stressed state Mm -hmm. that I got like really sick and had like an autoimmune reaction. Wow. Um, and it was purely like stress related. It was like right around when I was applying to college. Um, was there a feeling when you were a kid that the most important thing about you were accomplishments? Yeah. I've even written about this and it, that is definitely true. And it's, I spent a lot of time thinking about that because my parents never put that pressure on me, which I'm really appreciative of, but I put that pressure on myself. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was in my fifth year of working at Google, which was my like first job out of college. Well, you scored. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a very interesting time to be at Google too. It's a very different company now, but it was, I mean, it was a great experience for me. Um, I learned so much and the people that I met there were amazing, but, um, but I definitely had reached a point where I was no longer happy there. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't feeling very fulfilled in my job and yet I had a really hard time letting go of it because it was such a coveted job. It was like the job everyone wanted. Google was the number one company to work for. And that was when I had the realization about myself that I was very tied to, just like this feeling of accomplishment the status. Yeah. And I wrote like a whole article about it. Why, why I left Google. Um, and it ended up going viral and it was because so many people feel that way. Like, you know, so many people are driven by that. And I really spent time reflecting like, where did that come from? And, um, you know, why did I feel that way? And, and also really worked to change my idea of, success and what it meant to live a successful life. And that was a huge shift that happened uh, when I was, I guess I was like 27 or 28. And it really changed the course of my life because I ended up leaving. I took time off. I traveled. 
Um, and it was during that time that I incubated the idea for Mend, which truly maybe like a few years prior, I wouldn't have taken as seriously because I wouldn't have seen that as, um, as important, mm-hmm. um, or maybe like as big of an accomplishment. Right. And, um, and you know, my mindset changed around that and it really, it, uh, it made me realize how important it was that I worked on mend and why that was, you know, so impactful just in a different way. Have you ever attended any support groups in relation to uh, breakups or um, obsessive? I not obsessive, but breakups definitely. Yeah, like when I first had the idea for mend, I was going through it myself, so I was like the guinea pig. I mean, I was mm. trying everything, <laughs> and um, so I remember going to group sessions and actually a lot of them and i re- i remember Via this also, your therapist it wasn't through my therapist i did end up going to therapy but this was kind of before i decided to go see a therapist um i was kind of trying out everything that was self-help mm-hmm. um that i could get to without you know calling the number on the back of my insurance card right. and talking to someone on the phone and getting a long list of names like i didn't want to go through that right. i almost didn't have the patience for it i just wanted something like more immediate And, um, I remembered from watching my mom go through the divorce with my dad that she had gone to support groups and a lot of them were, um, were, were hosted by churches. Mm -hmm. Like that was like a very common place. And so I remember going to a couple, not not just physically in a church, but run by the church, run by churches. And there were some that were just hosted in Mm -hmm. like church buildings and, um, and I wasn't really raised in a religious household, but, um, and my mom wasn't particularly religious, but I mean, you, you do any, like you go anywhere, like you're so desperate. The gift of desperation. Yeah. And it's a really lucky thing. And it's like this very special moment in life where you're very open to trying new things. Cause I really tried so many new things. And one, one was like going to a, a support group and I tried out a couple. Um, there were a lot of, kind of like online communities too Mm -hmm. that weren't really meant for that, but ended up being about breakups. Like, um, you know, there was a really great like Reddit sub thread on, Mm -hmm. on breakups and relationships. And, um, so I, I definitely tested the waters and went to a lot of things. And then there were a lot of places and resources that I went to because I was heartbroken and I sort of like molded it to fit that, but it wasn't really meant for that. You know, I went on like a silent retreat Mm -hmm. and I'm sure a lot of people that go on retreats and I know now having started mend, um, you know, a lot of people go on those retreats because they're heartbroken in some way. Um, and you know, that was my intention kind of going into some of those things. So, and I mean, there are a lot of different manifestations of it. Like it was also a time when I was experimenting with a lot of new like hobbies and activities. And I started running then and became like a really serious runner. And then later on learned how many people train for marathons during breakups breakup. and divorces. Yeah. yeah. Like a lot of people. So it's, it's like, we're going to find a coping mechanism. Yeah. It's just going to run until whether or not off. it's healthy, uh, <laughs> you know, is yeah. 
yeah. ver- varies widely. Yeah. Uh, for me, when I was going through the pain of a divorce, uh, I compulsively played the game Civilization. I would mm. come home at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and I would play it every night until the sun came up. We're talking yeah. like eight hours straight. Wow. And it just felt like armor. Yeah. It felt like armor because it's so engrossing yeah. that you, there isn't a moment to think about anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of numbing in that way. And yeah. that is also, you know, distraction can be a really healthy thing. And sometimes your body does actually need a break from feeling pain, you know, mm-hmm. at that level. And so in that way, like it is helpful to have some distraction and then it can be unhealthy. Like I remember there were times um, probably more like when I was in college or like in the beginning of my career where I would just throw myself into work or studying and it was partially healthy, but then, you know, eventually you run into yourself yeah. and you have to sit with yourself and you have to quiet your mind and you have to actually, you know, process what happened. Mm-hmm. It eventually catches up with you. It will. It, yeah. it is driving the bus whether you yeah. think you're letting it or not. Yeah. It's going to come out in, in some way. Yeah. And now I've learned that there's like, you know, it's different for everyone and there's no like perfect formula for it, but there is some balance between those periods of distraction and periods where you're proactively like really trying to support yourself and process what you're going through. How important... Uh, was human connection and you healing so important and I think it was something I didn't realize initially and it's funny I just wrote um, a story about this but um, there was one breakup I went through where um, my friend was also going through a breakup at the same time and she had found uh, like a Groupon for a B&B getaway. It was meant for a couple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember she emailed it to me and she was like, we should go to this. I was living in Boston at the time and we went and it was like a spa package getaway. Mm-hmm. And I had been going through the breakup for a while and wasn't dating anyone. and was like kind of like isolating myself, like mm-hmm. very focused on work, coming home, just like mm-hmm. being alone, you know, and, and, was it the phase where I didn't want to go out with friends and my friends were really trying to get me out and I just didn't want to. And then we went on that, um, that trip to Vermont and there was a massage included. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in the room with the masseuse and she had asked me just like, how are you feeling? And I was in that phase too, where I would talk to anyone about my breakup, you know, just like, you ask me what my name is. I'm like, hi, I'm Elle. And yes, I'm going through a breakup and I'm going to tell you all about it. Um, and so I told her a little bit about the breakup and then she gave me this, uh, it was like a transcendent, compassionate massage. It was so wonderful. And I realized then how important connection was and how important human touch was and how I had been sort of starving myself from it. Um, and, that was sort of a turning point for me with that particular breakup because I realized, you know, I needed to go see my friends. I needed to really push myself out of my comfort zone. And, um, and yeah, cause I was starved for it. Like when you're in a relationship, you always have access. Like for the most part, you were right. with someone and you're touching and you're hugging and you're having sex, hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and then all of a sudden you're not. 
and you're really like your body goes through withdrawal. And I'll never forget that moment. It was like a really, it was a, uh, an important learning moment for me of how important just that it's very primal, just like oh, needing to be yes. comforted and connected. To I someone. go to a support group that focuses on struggles with, uh, intimacy, both mm. platonic and uh, romantic. And there is a period of withdrawal where, because 99.9% of the people that come into that uh, support group experienced either abuse or neglect as a, as a child. And we found ways to cope that pushed that pain down and the memories down. And so when you get into this support group, one of the things they encourage you to do is to withdraw from mm. be it a person you're obsessed with or, you know, uh, if you're being promiscuous or maybe you're isolating. And there are many people who are cross-addicted in there. Um, many of them were addicted to heroin and they sh have shared to a person that going through the withdrawal from sex or love or anything like that, far worse than heroin addiction. Wow. Yeah, it's really powerful. And it's, um, you know, we were wired to feel that way. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important. On, like, it's helpful to just know that you were wired to feel that way and that it's not, that you're not crazy, you right. know, and you're just. You're not it, weak. Yeah, you're not weak. And it's just, it just means that you're human. And that's like the normal kind of alarm system that's supposed to go off when you're, you know disconnected from someone what were some of the negative uh self-beliefs or self-talk when you were at your lowest what was your your mind saying to you about you or your future or your past or yeah i mean i think at the core of it there were you know a lot of specific ones and um but i think at the core of it it's this belief that you aren't enough mm -hmm. and um and I think for me, it was really, it was especially highlighted because of social media and because you can so easily see your ex move on with their life and the new people that they're dating and, you know, what they're doing with their time. And it's so hard not to kind of fall into that comparison game. And so I remember feeling that way a lot, just like, why wasn't I enough? And what was it about that person that's better than me? And like, what did they have that I didn't have? And so I think it, at the core, it was sort of that. And then, um, and then I think there was also this kind of core belief that, um, that came up for me, uh, that because this one person didn't love me, that I was somehow not going to find love. Right. And, you know, it's just, it's completely irrational. As if they're a representative of the greater population. Yeah, exactly. But it feels very real. It's like you take this one sample and you're like, yep, no, that's my fate forever. You know, and I, I mean, now I look back on it and I'm like, oh, that was ridiculous. I mean, I remember feeling that way my very first breakup when I was like, you know, 18. There was so much life ahead of me, like so many relationships and breakups that I would go through. Um, and... But it feels very real. Like, it really does. It feels like because this one person doesn't want to be with oh, me, yeah. I don't know if I'm ever going to find someone. Yeah. And, and and then you enter the 
their fucking someone else diet. Yeah, which is terrible. And that's terrible. where social media is really like it's it's very unhealthy and like I strongly recommend that you detox from it. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a great thing to take a break. Yeah. From you have to take a break. Sometimes from it. permanently. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because it's not always enough, like, especially the way the algorithm works and how, you know, it recommends things to you. Like, it's really such a minefield and it's not always just enough to unfollow them because you could still run into them. Right. It's like a friend posts about them or tags them in something or they comment on mm -hmm. someone's post that you happen to follow and you see it. And it's just like there's too much risk there in the early days after a breakup and... um. It's just, it's so important to give yourself that buffer room. Yeah. I'm talking to people when they come into our support group and encouraging them to take a break from social media, it, th they're like children and you're trying to take their blanket away. Oh, and, yeah. and I'll say, okay, well, let's just talk about what it is that you're getting from it. And then when they have to say it out loud, yeah. they realize how f big that vague fear of missing out yeah. Is. Yeah. That that the world is going to forget about them yes. if they're not on there. Yeah. And I mean, it was designed that way. And um, those apps are designed to maximize engagement, to keep you in the app as long as possible. Yeah. To, I mean, yeah, to generate revenue. And it's like, it's a very different... Um, world we live in now that's the case but. i think the only thing that would be more addicting would be a room full of people talking about you yeah, yeah right yeah, next yeah. door right You're like, oh, i just have to hear what they're gonna have to say <laughs> right. yeah but it's i mean it's really it's difficult and i mean breakups have always been difficult but that layer of technology adds this like extra special layer that you have to deal with now <laughs> so when you set out to create uh mend what did you want it to provide that you hadn't been able to find i wanted mend to feel like a best friend that could guide you through a breakup but a best friend that also happened to be an expert on the subject you know because i felt like my friends and also a, a best friend who just had endless patience mm -hmm. for you because i have great friends and you know they were very supportive and like you know, during different times in my life when I've needed support, friends are really important. They're like a, an important piece of that, like support puzzle for me. But, um, your friends can't help but project their experiences mm -hmm. onto yours and your friends have their lives. So, yeah. you know, you can't call them like every hour. And so I wanted to create something that would be there, um, like 24 seven and also something that was more rooted in, um, objective advice. And like, I just remember getting so much advice that was so biased. It's mm -hmm. just, and then you looked at the person and you're like, Oh, they're telling me that because their parents got divorced when, you know, they were in junior high for that reason. And, you know, and then they went through this bad relationship. And so it all makes sense. Right. But, um, but I think it is really important to kind of get more third party. And so advice how, and support. who are those people and how did you find them? So, um, so we have sort of a, a network of and kind of extended family of mental health experts and wellness experts who help create the content within the app. 
Um, so like every day you check in and you listen to an audio training and the audio training is actually my voice, but the content has been written by, by experts. And a lot of them I found, um, a lot of them now find us because we have, you know, we're still a startup, but we've, uh, we've grown and we've built a brand where people recognize who we are and they want to work with us, uh, which is great. But in the early days, it was very organic. Um, Mend was not always an app. I started Mend initially as a newsletter, mm-hmm. um, just like breakup advice that I would send out initially to my mom and a few friends mm-hmm. and then I grew from there and then it turned into a content website. And so a lot of people we found through that community. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and so how many people roughly are, are using it now? We, so we don't share user numbers, but, um, but we're in, we just hit like over 195 countries that we're in now. Wow. So at least 195 people, at least 195 people. Yeah. And we have two people in the U (laughs) S um, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, I mean, we have, uh, we do share, how many kind of training activities we've completed and mm-hmm. we're over 2 million now. Um, and it's been really exciting, like watching men grow from a newsletter that I would write at my kitchen table to now an app that's being used all over. And we're iOS only right now, but we're about to launch an Android, which opens us up really like beyond the U S a lot more, right. which we're really excited about. And then, um, we're also launching Spanish, which, uh, we're very excited about. Um, that's a big request is mm-hmm. mend in Spanish. Um, and I mean, it's amazing. Like we're in over 195 countries, but in English. And so a lot of people right. are mending in their second language. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't do everything at once, even right. though we'd like to, but we're slowly, slowly growing and expanding as we can. Well, uh, congrats on what sounds like, a, a real passion project. And like you, uh, leaving Google was such a, um, a moment of claiming your authenticity without really knowing concretely what you were doing, just knowing by process of elimination, what you didn't want. I feel like a lot of times so much of life is just weeding out what we know we don't want. And then we're available for the universe to kind of meet us halfway. I really do believe that happens. I truly believe that. And I, um, I think that's such a, such a great way to word it. It's so true. Like, I really believe that when you, like when I, it was only when I fully let go of that, that I was able to let something else into my life. And I believe that that's true for relationships too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the universe rewards you for taking those big risks, yes. but only when you fully take them, it can't be like one foot in one foot out. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's so true. That's how it would, this podcast I came to do this full time was I started it because I just thought it was something that was needed. And I was yeah. still doing stand up and doing TV stuff. And as I began doing this podcast, I began to feel this sense of meaning and purpose in my life. And I thought, I don't want to go on the road and do stand-up anymore. I don't want to audition for yeah. TV stuff. I want to do this. And I just had the feeling the universe was going was gonna to meet me halfway. And it, it did. It did. It did. Yeah, well, I'm glad you had that feeling 
Yeah. It's yeah. a really, it's an amazing, not just podcast, but community. So Yeah, because that's really what it yeah. it is all about is human connection, which is why yeah. I asked that that question it's it it always comes back to love where whether it's platonic or romantic um it's really i feel like that that's when we are our highest selves is when we are loving without expecting anything in return you know yeah Thanks for coming on, Al. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to Al. And as always, we put the links to the stuff that we mention on the podcast. Uh, I want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors today, Veradesk. It's the world's leading standing desk solution, helping professionals maintain a healthy, active lifestyle in the office or at home. Veradesk converts any desk into a standing desk and is designed with durable, best-in-class materials that fit in any environment or workspace. With Veradesk, you can easily go from sitting to standing, increasing your productivity, focus, and collaboration. That way, you can get more done and focus on the things that matter most to you. Veradesk comes with a 30-day risk-free guarantee, and there's no assembly required. They also cover shipping both ways. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up. Veradesk is trusted by 98% of Fortune 500 companies and has over 14,000 five-star reviews from professionals all over the world. Stay focused on what matters with Veradesk. To learn more about Veradesk Standing Desk Solutions, visit veradesk.com slash work elevated. That's V-A-R-I-D-E-S-K dot com slash work elevated. Maximize your productivity at veradesk.com slash work elevated. I want to also tell you about a podcast I think you guys might be interested in. It's full of vulnerable stories from brilliant people, and it's called But That's Another Story. It's a moving, heartfelt show about our lives and the books that change us. Every other week, best-selling author Will Schwalbe talks to influential figures about the books that have made a difference in their lives. Hear from guests like Melinda Gates, who shared the single book that showed her how to go after her passion, and Jodie Foster, who discussed the book that convinced her to go to college and find a community before pursuing her dream of acting. You'll hear stories that start with people trying to get out of a bad place, but each guest was able to find a new path or learn something new thanks to one great book. And uh, I think you should check it out. Find But That's Another Story on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. Again, that's But That's Another Story. And please also remember to subscribe to this podcast. That helps increase our uh, our download numbers, and that's uh, that's hugely important. So um, much appreciated if you would if you would do that. Let's get to some surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Maja. Am I pronouncing it right? M A J A. She's a teenager. And a snapshot from her life. She deals with ADD, anxiety, compulsive eating, and um, uh, self-harm and skin picking and a uh, snapshot from her life she writes looking at pictures of girls on Instagram that I know my ex-boyfriend likes for hours crying and cutting my thighs feels better than having to go out and meet people and you know first of all sending you a, a big uh, big hug it sounds like you're in a lot of pain and you're you're coping by self-harming and 
isolating and there are better coping skills than that. That's in the absence of good coping skills. That's what we do. We do stuff that numbs us. So, um, it is possible for you to find a way to deal with these overwhelming feelings, um, that, that don't hurt you. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Dr. P. And uh, he writes, I've battled major depression for a year and had been enjoying a months-long respite from it. But this week, it's, it's come back, sweeping back, making me feel hopeless, inert, and suicidal. I teach at a university, and oddly enough, when I'm in a trough of depression, much as I dread going to a classroom and hope for anything, say a heart attack or an active shooter, that will spare me from it, I always find I can put on a good show of being alert and engaging when I'm in front of students and actually don't feel my depression while teaching. The minute I leave the classroom, I'm in the dumps again, but still marveling at how I can come to life for those 80 minutes. Two days ago, while I was doing my impersonation of a non-depressive for my afternoon class, my phone rang, and as it happens, my ringtone is the Mental Illness Happy Hour theme song. After I'd silenced the phone, a student said, that's exactly the ringtone I'd expect you to have. I was caught off guard and my mind quickly filled with thoughts ranging from, he listens too, I'm not alone, to, oh my God, I've just confirmed his suspicions that I'm crazy. About half the class started laughing, which didn't help the situation. I asked what he meant and he said, oh, just a bouncy tune that a happy old guy would listen to. I wasn't sure whether I should respond, who are you calling old or who are you calling happy? I just laughed a little myself and the class moved on. When I left the classroom that day, I didn't feel depressed. I guess my happy act works, and I felt assured that eventually my current spell of depression will lift, and for a while at least, I won't be putting on the act either in the classroom or anywhere else. Thank you for that. I like anything that mentions me. That's right, I'm a narcissist. Um, This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself an anxiety addict. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, Sometimes it feels like I have an invisible brick wall boxed around me. I can see everyone else and the interactions they are having with each other, but I can't speak or interact with them myself because of the brick wall that separates me from them. No matter how much I want to, I physically can't connect with those around me. Man, do I know that feeling. I lived with it for years, and it is it is prison-like. And, I mean, that's kind of obvious, but um, I think the hardest step in recovering is that first time that we reach out for help because it's as shitty as the isolating and the pulling away and the just our days getting small as shitty as that comfort is it doesn't it doesn't move us forward and it's so scary to ask for help but it's never it's never as awful as we make it out to be in our heads This is an awful moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Red. 
She writes, I was hospitalized with blood clots in my legs and lungs. My sister spread word to my mother who decided to fly in to visit. I had cut off contact and hadn't seen her in years. Both times she came to visit the hospital, she tried starting a fight with my dad in the ICU and proceeded to try to pressure me into telling my dad to leave. I didn't let her control me. I'd been terrified of my mom for years. When I was younger, she was physically and emotionally abusive. Being trapped in the same room with her and not being able to leave used to be my biggest fear. However, at the hospital, even though I was stuck and couldn't leave, I wasn't afraid. She was more frightening in my memories. She just looked ridiculous making a scene in the hospital, and I realized she doesn't have the same control over me that she had when I was a child. That is just so huge. Just so huge. It's, it's amazing the power that we give in our minds to people who have hurt us. And it feels so real. It's like our, our central nervous system just regresses us to that little kid that was powerless. And to have a moment of clarity like that, that, that you did, is so beautiful. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Spencer Bell, about his codependency. Maybe if I almost die, she will love me like I need her to and forget about him. A snapshot from his life. This past month has been the worst time of my life. My wife of 10 years had an online affair. On the surface, this doesn't seem so bad. I got to disagree. I think that does. I think that is bad. Anyway, but it has triggered every mental illness and insecurity that I struggle with. I left her when I found out about him. It was very dramatic, almost traumatic. She begged for me to take her back. After days of uncontrollable sobbing and misery, she mentioned how I've been treating her and how even though she is fully to blame, I put her in such a place that led to her behavior. The real life, that Those two sound like contradictory statements that, that even though she is to... F- fully to blame, I put her in such a place that led to her behavior. She has a part in going to that place that led to her behavior because she could have been communicating with you throughout then instead of escaping into that behavior. The realization of how I had neglected her needs made me take her back. And by the way, that's, that's not, you know, ignoring the fact that you were you know, neglecting her needs, but that's a separate issue from how she responded to you neglecting her needs. Uh, the realization of how I had neglected her needs made me take her back. I can't stand the thought of being without her anyways. A week later, I checked her phone and found emails to him saying, I will always love you and I'm doing this purely for the kids. I was crushed once again, so I called it quits a second time, yet she convinced me She was just letting him go in her own way, so I went back again. But this didn't stop. Stop. I kept finding more, my heart breaking over and over. Even after going to couples therapy and telling me she only wants me, she was still talking to him. I told her to say goodbye for good or we are done. She said she did and I believed her. But now I live every day in fear that she is lying, that I'm trying to make our marriage good while she's still in love with someone else. I have many, many thoughts here. First, sending you some love, man. Um, it, you, there is a part to play 
with the loved one of the person engaging in the compulsive behavior. And it's very easy to just focus on that person and what their actions are. And other things that need to be considered are why do you keep letting her come back? Another thing that I think is really healthy to do in a, in a relationship is to put aside those person's words and promises and look at their actions and let that inform the decisions that you make. I'm going to take a wild guess that there is a fear in you of being alone and that that is factoring into your decision to keep letting somebody come back who, from what you've written, doesn't seem to be taking any action to deal with this issue that she has. Somebody who is doing the things that she is doing should be getting some type of help because that's a, you know, I don't I don't want to diagnose it, but it has all the elements of love addiction and fear of intimacy. And somebody who is in love with someone who has a fear of intimacy also has a fear of intimacy because there's a comfort in knowing that somebody isn't going to get too close. And it's almost an unspoken agreement between two people. And that's why, like when you see an alcoholic get sober, why sometimes it's so important for their loved ones to also get get help because it's a, it's a dynamic. It's a, a family system and the whole system needs to be addressed. Just my two cents. I'm not a therapist, but I did cook stuff on basic cable for a good chunk of time. And some of it was delicious. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Margaret. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I have no memories of anything physical, but was introduced to sexual concepts at the age of three. I feel awful, and I have a lot of guilt because I then became a young child who touched other children's genitals and reenacted what I thought sex was with them. I regularly think about how they might be doing and if I mess them up. To which I would say, remember that you were a child. You were a child. Uh... She's been emotionally abused. When I was 18 or 19, I had an older partner that gaslit me regularly. They're very smart and could argue circles around me. I was never right, and they could never be wrong about anything. I feel conflicted because when we broke up, I told them that they'd never touch anyone as hot as me again, and they've since openly struggled with trying to date as a genderqueer person. Part of me still thinks they're a piece of shit, though. Darkest thoughts. I think about being forced to fuck relatives. I have dreams about it all the time. Darkest secrets. Getting off on incest porn. I don't like thinking about it too much because I've seen everyone in my immediate family naked as adults. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. A male relative or several forcing me to be a sex slave. Having an affair with a friend. I feel both ashamed and turned on writing this because I don't want these to be my top fantasies. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to apologize to my youngest brother for standing naked in front of him as a young teen and begging him to tell me I was prettier than Britney Spears. There is no good way to bring that up, especially since he is the sweetest, most well-adjusted person I know. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish my body was never in pain and that I could love it. Have you shared these things with others? I've never shared any of this with anyone ever. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved and scared, like I belong in jail. From what you have written, you do not belong in jail. But you could benefit from opening up about these things because shame that remains in the dark drags us down. It drags us down. It cuts us off from human connection. And intense emotions and experience experiences like the ones that you experienced need to be processed. And you deserve to feel peace. Sending you some love. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself My Niece Calls Me Emmy. She writes, Several years ago, I did not finish college when I was studying engineering and lost a part of my identity because I wasn't, quote, smart enough to finish. Now, I want to go back to school to become a licensed clinical social worker or LPC to do talk therapy, but had been feeling intense anxiety about failing again. So today in counseling, I finished up a session of EMDR with my counselor, where the moment that I focused on was a moment at the end of my college experience. I was in a group project with two boys who excluded me from the work. I attempted to reach out to find out when and where we were supposed to work on it, but was ignored. When it was presenting day, they had left my name off of the project, which in hindsight, I guess, I get. When the presentation was done, I was just sitting there with them at the front of the class, embarrassed that my name wasn't on the project at all. The TA asked about it in front of everyone, but I was too ashamed and shy to advocate for myself, so there was just an awkward silence. I left the class with the intention to never set foot into that classroom again. I still feel a little bit of inadequacy that this moment isn't big enough to call awful. No, it's awful. But it was part of the catalyst for me dropping out of college and subsequently experiencing the worst depression of my life. Anyway, my counselor and I were using tapping EMDR, and during one of the sessions, I started laughing because I realized that that moment is quintessentially why I wanted to do something in the mental health field. I realized that I did not deserve what happened to me, and the boys who did it were not trying to hurt my feelings, that if the world could be a better place where people could learn how to treat others, stuff, stuff like that wouldn't have to happen. Then I realized that I want to bring, that I want to help bring about that change, and I think that is pretty awesome. I'm also excited because I've listened to this podcast for a long time and couldn't really identify any awfulsome moments in my life. When I was thinking about this, I was like, oh shit, I have my own awfulsome moment now. I have to tell Paul because, of course, in my head, you and I are very good friends. Now, oh, that's beautiful. I have to say, though, I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling in our friendship like, um, like we're drifting apart. I'm feeling like we're drifting apart. And I think it's because of the letter bombs that you've been sending me. I don't want to make too big of a deal of it, but it just feels insensitive that you're trying to 
kill me through a surprise explosion. My therapist says I'm making too big of a deal of it. But then again, my my therapist is also trying to kill me. I wonder if the two of you are working together. I see you guys at the post office all the time, huddled and whispering. I'm starting to piece some things together. Oh, I so want to stop and erase the last minute of this podcast. But we're plowing forward. It has actually helped me doing this podcast to sit through the moments where I'm like, oh, that was so stupid. That was not funny. I should go back and erase that, but decide to leave it in because I know sometimes I overthink things. And there's uh, the fear of leaving those moments where I think I look bad. Walking through that fear is, is empowering. Scary, but empowering. And right now you're all thinking, no, you should have erased it. You wasted a minute of my life. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Everything is Just Dandy. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. Actually, she's 20. Was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. It was physical and psychological abuse from my babysitter from ages 1 to 5. Then, when I was 16, I was tipsy for the first time, and my boyfriend kind of took advantage. It's a little complicated. Oh, and I also had this weird teach in sixth grade that would come on to the kids. She's also been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, my mom is a super strong single mom. When I was born, she had to work a lot, so she got a babysitter. This woman would push me down the stairs. She would give me cold showers. She broke my arm, made a hole in the wall in our bathroom with my head. She would force feed me hot peppers from our garden. I'm just now getting over my hate of spicy foods. She would either do belts or unravel wire hangers to beat my butt after the showers. She would fuck with my head and tell me to do stuff that would get me in trouble, and if I didn't do it, I would get a beating. She lied to my mom on every injury I had. Ridiculous lies. But as a one- to five-year-old, how was I supposed to say anything? I still have so much hate for that little kid who couldn't protect herself and didn't have the courage to just tell someone what was happening. I remember feeling so alone, and when my mom would come home, she was like the bright light, but the darkness was still there looming over me, watching my every move and making sure I didn't say anything. My God, that is horrifying. Any positive experience, experiences with the abusers? No. Even after I told my mom, she would still make us stay in contact with her after she left. She took us to go see her every once in a couple... Once every couple of years, I never understood this. I cannot understand that either. And that speaks to something about your mom. Um, that, you know, your mom may have been a strong woman as far as providing for you financially, but that is a weak-ass decision on your mom's part. Darkest thoughts, ending things, kids, dark sexual shit, rape. Darkest secrets. I got suspended from school in fifth grade for kissing a boy on the school grounds. They called it sexual harassment. 
at 10 years old. Fuck me, right? You know, when I hear stuff like that, I, I ask myself, my first reaction is, wow, that seems extreme. Uh, and then I think, well, maybe I'm that, that old person that doesn't realize that their era was, uh, just unsafe and barbaric and awful. So I don't know. You know, I, it, it, like a better term than sexual harassment might seem, uh, you know, crossing boundaries. You know, we had a boundary crossing episode or calling it inappropriate, but harassment, you know, harassment would be like, you know, I don't know. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I am obsessed with watching extreme female orgasms. I have a weird thing for cartoon porn, also bondage, but not violent. Sharing this makes me feel turned on, honestly, LOL, TMI, question mark. But really, I'm pretty scared of my own body right now and have a hard time being okay touching myself again, so this question is pretty uncomfortable. There's like a shadow of guilt over sex, and I think it's because I'm in a committed relationship to a man, and I fear I don't want to be with men, but he is my love. He has my heart, and I would do anything for him. Lost much? Question mark. The survey that I'm going to read after this is is very similar to this in that it's kind of a similar situation, um, but it's a man who wants to be with men but is in a relationship. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell God he's got a real fucked up sense of humor. <laughs> I can't imagine how many other people want to tell tell God that. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace. I want to feel like there are not six voices in my head all at one time. I want to be able to focus and be happy. Have you shared these things with others? Yeah, I'm pretty open about my life, little things here and there, but I and there. I don't, but I mainly am an open book. That was a difficult sentence to pronounce. How do you feel after writing these things down? Actually, a little better. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are not alone and you are not crazy. Don't be afraid to let people in. They don't just want something from you. It's okay to let yourself be happy. You may not feel like you deserve it, but you do. And you do other things for the people that you love, and you may not even realize it. They love you for a reason, not just because they have to. Thank you so much for that. That was really, really heartfelt. And I love when you guys really get to the nitty-gritty in your surveys, and you don't hold back. It's so helpful to the rest of us, because... I think all of us have nitty-gritty details of the stuff that we hold inside. And I think it helps us feel less alone when people get specific about what it is that they're struggling with or they've experienced or they think about. 
This is the uh, other survey I was telling you about. It's a shame and secret survey, and it's filled out guy, by a guy who calls himself Carrie Price. For those of you that don't know, that's, uh, that's the name of a, a famous goalie for the uh, Montreal Canadiens and an amazing goalie. Um, he is, uh, he identifies as gay. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He's never been sexually abused. He's not sure if he's been emotionally or physically abused. Uh, I would say he has been. My dad was pretty physical, but so were a lot of other dads where I grew up. Yeah, that, but that doesn't, it doesn't matter where it is on the, on the curve of dads. Um, sometimes he used a belt. He used it more often when he was drinking. I still have a scar on my ass from a bad Jack Daniels binge he went on one weekend. He beat me until I was 15. Uh, I hope that doesn't mean he started the binge on that weekend uh, and beat you continuously until you were 15. That's right, Paul. Inject jokes into this extremely serious moment from this guy's life. Um, he beat me until I was 15 and was big enough to tell him that if he tried it again, it wasn't going to end well for him. Any positive experiences with the people who abused you? My dad was at every hockey game I ever played. He cried at my wedding. He's a good man. He's just a product of his upbringing and his environment. Darkest thoughts. I'm pretty sure I'm gay. I married my high school sweetheart at 20. We have two kids. I want to leave my wife and start again, but I can't do that to my kids. I work a blue-collar job. I can barely keep up with mortgage payments as it is. I wouldn't want my kids to have to move or to have the only gay dad in town. It would destroy my poor wife. She's a wonderful woman and a great mother. She is so kind and thoughtful, and I love her like a best friend. We don't have sex anymore, and she wonders why. I just can't keep faking it. I just tell her I'm tired out from my job. Darkest secrets. I look at other guys in the locker room. Sometimes it makes me hard. One time, a teammate caught me doing it. I said some pretty shitty homophobic things to cover up. Every time someone else says something homophobic, I feel like they are stepping on my chest. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. This is the other thing that makes it hard to leave my wife. I don't know if I would ever find the kind of guy that I am into. This is going to sound really egotistical, but I want a guy who is a little like me, a working-class dude who likes hockey, drives a pickup, and just wants to go fishing on the weekends. Someone who doesn't talk too much, just likes quiet time in a quiet town. In my fantasy, the new guy starts working in my crew. Slowly, we fall in love. Somehow, I win the fucking lottery so I can take care of my family and buy a second house in the country, but close to my kids. Anyway, this guy and I fall in love and we live together. After work, we go to the bar to watch the game. Then we go home and fuck. We share. None of this top and bottom stuff. We take turns. No one treats us any different at work or when we get groceries. We just live together. Sharing this makes me sad because I can guarantee that it won't happen. That makes me sad too, reading this, because I think we all have a, a part of us that is in some state of not being realized yet. And when I hear people taking those dreams off the table, you know, there's the dream of I want to be an astronaut, and then there's the, the, the dream of I just want to be my authentic self. You know, as, as I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, if 
while it might be painful and probably would be painful to your kids for you to get a divorce and maybe for people in, in town to know that you're gay, you know, fast forward to your children in their 20s or 30s. If you, I bet if you were to ask them, would you have liked your dad to hide who he was or would you have liked for your dad to be his authentic self even though it meant divorce? I bet those adult children would say, I really wish dad would have gone and lived the life that he wanted to. It pains me to think that he had to suffer because he didn't want us to feel embarrassment. I can't imagine what it's like being in your situation. So I'm not I'm not going to pretend but I I just know your survey really moved me. And I know there are counselors who deal with LGBTQ issues and because you're in a small town, um, you might be able to find one, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, and I did not start this out trying to make this a plug for our therapy sponsor, but um, that might be a good thing to do because this is some heavy shit. This is some heavy shit. And what's going to destroy your wife more? Living the rest of her life with somebody that doesn't want to have sex with her and is distant or you giving her a chance to move on. The two of you can still be friends so she could still have your friendship and potentially have somebody that she can be physically intimate with as well. I just... I. 99% of the time, if not 100% of the time, when I see people claiming their authenticity, it has a way of working out. Not that it's without pain or setback or struggle, but in the long run, I've never seen anybody regret claiming their authenticity. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want my kids and wife to be taken care of. They deserve a better man than me. I want to see them every day, but go home to a guy who I am attracted to and can just feel comfortable around, someone to grow old with. Have you shared these things with others? Hell no. The only outlet I can think of is conf confession, and I know how well that will turn out. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sad. I wish it could even say that I regret marrying my wife, but I don't. I love my kids. When they run down the driveway, I get a little choked up. They are so smart for their ages, polite and really kind. I don't think I will ever get what I want. I feel hopeless. Anything you'd like to share Excuse me, with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Just hold on. Maybe something good will come along. Maybe all of this was for a reason. Thank you so much for that. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself 
My next pet's name will be Paul. And in parentheses, I'll explain why. She writes, I was just listening to your episode in which you explained how you met your new companion, Grace. I decided, by the way, to to call her Gracie instead of Grace. Uh, I listened as I drove to my job that overworks me and underpays me, but the sun had come out and felt like the sun for the first time in like six months. I live in Indiana, and my windows were down, and I was primed to have an unconditionally good day, which were hard to come by for much of my life. Listening to you interrupt yourself telling this story about a saving grace and moments of serendipity to talk to that sweet little innocent being made my eyes well up. It felt like sitting with my oldest friends. I should also mention that my name is actually Grace. I'm going to ask you to start calling yourself Gracie. My family and friends call me, oh, there we go, call me Gracie. Hearing you describe your new dog and why you named her that made me feel so special. It made me take inventory of all the people who have been those saving graces for me, and it made me grateful I didn't take my own life all the times I'd hoped and planned to, because maybe I could be that special grace to others too. I'm getting married in a little over two weeks to someone who holds a mirror up to me on a daily basis, challenges me, and doesn't just tell me why he thinks I'm worthy or great, though he does plenty of this, but also encourages me to look at myself and be my own cheerleader and give myself rests when I need it. I wouldn't have gotten this opportunity if I had listened to the narrative in my head that said I'll never have those grace-filled moments and I'll surely never give them to anyone else. Your soothing voice and message, go lay down, reminded me of the people who reminded me to rest, and that I was finally safe after surviving my sexual assault, miscarriage, and battled my own thoughts of self-demise. I'm crying real, heavy, full-body tears, the ones that make you feel like you've just run a marathon, but you're about to take the best nap of your life. Thank you for giving me that. It only feels fitting when my soon-to-be husband Get a dog or cat that we should name him Paul. Pay it forward, right? Question mark. Oh. And she writes, please don't stop producing this show, and I vote that you let Grace in the studio. It's the sweetest interruption. Of course, she's been laying behind me sound asleep for uh, the last uh, last hour. Um, and I think you call your dog or cat either Paul or what I would really like would be Herbert Paul. And you always say it with a French accent. Thank you for that. That That's, uh, man, I, my spirits get so lifted sometimes from the, the things that you guys share. And, you know, when I can see sometimes that maybe I've touched somebody's life a little bit, um, it silences that part of my brain that tells me I'm invisible or I'm fucking up or I'm not working hard enough. All those mean things that uh, that it's, I would call a mean Paul. Now that's mean DJ voice who has been actually on vacation uh, in New Zealand for, I don't know why he chose New Zealand. Why'd you choose New Zealand? Because oh, they play some classic tunes there, maybe. Anyway, I forgot where I was. Anyway, descend your spiral staircase, whatever shape it comes in. Choose the fan of your own making and fan away your vapors. Oh my God. 
Is this really how we're going to end the podcast, Paul? Yes, it is. If you're out there and you're struggling, just remember you're not alone. And help is out there if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone. Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.